This station is conducting a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. Look, before we start this episode of the James McMahon Music Podcast, I need to tell you something. I need your help. I need you, when you finish with the episode, to go to the platform you've listened to this podcast on and give me a rating, a review, and to subscribe too. It helps me cheat the algorithm and get more ears on the podcast. And know this, I'm very grateful for it. Also, I have a substack where I write about music and film and telly and all sorts of stuff. I love it if you sign up for dispatches. There are different price options, five quid a month, 50 quid a year, and for that, you get access to loads of exclusive writing and podcasts. It's the most helpful thing you can do to support the stuff I make. And again, I'd be so grateful. That's spook.substack.com. That's spook with three O's. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank Jesus. This concludes this test of the emergency broadcast system. Oh, shit. You listen to the James McMahon Music Podcast. And I'm your host, James McMahon. And this is a Spook Media Production. Besides length, weight, and volume, there is one more important measurement to know in the metric system. Temperature. Celsius temperature. If you haven't checked it out yet, I urge you to listen to Metric's new album, their eighth, at the first available opportunity. It's called For Ment Terror. It came out last week, just before I did this interview, and from its first song onwards, the sprawling and, dare I say, magnificent multi-part symphony that is Doom Scroller. It's one of the best collection of progressive indie pop songs I've heard so far this year. It is remarkable. No, really, it is a remarkable album. Why are you here still? Go check it out. But if you are still here, well, settle in for this conversation I had with guitarist and band ever constant James Shaw. He taught Neil Young, social media, philosophy, mental health, making mistakes to make musical legends, and as it is now traditional, anytime I speak to a Canadian on this podcast, moose. I was supposed to speak to singer Emily Hayes as well for this podcast, but sadly she fell ill. But don't worry, James has one of the best moose stories this podcast has featured to date. Are you over? Are you over at Barbara Sharon's office? I am. Very nice. I've been writing about music for twenty years, and I didn't visit it until a couple of years ago. Um, and I thought it was really nice, but I would expect nothing else from Barbara Sharon's gaff. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think I actually I was over there. I interviewed uh, Rufus Wainwright, and he just he just landed. And it was just before like the pandemic like hit the UK and he just landed. He was like, Oh, this is this is really weird thing going on. You know, everyone on the plane is wearing masks. And I was like, Oh, they'll never catch on. And then uh <laughs> the following a couple of years, you know, it, it, it ensued. It's true. <sighs> it seemed like that it I think it really caught on. Yeah, totally. Yeah, popular. Yeah. Well, you know, anyway, here we are. Um Emily's sick. Uh, is she okay? I think she's yeah, she'll be fine. We we've had an absolutely insane schedule for the last five days, and I think it just caught up. That's all. Yeah, no, totally. Better to be uh, better to be well now as the record comes out than get ill kind of uh, into the campaign. Um, yeah. 
So how long? So the record came out like at midnight. I've spent this morning binging it. Are you? What's it like when a record kind of leaves your possession and enters uh, the public domain? Um, it's it's definitely twofold. You know, there's like there's the part of it that um, that makes it. You know, that's like it's a release, right? It, and it's like I'm happy that it's out in the world, and and we we made it for people. We didn't just make it for ourselves. You know, um, but. Uh, there's the other the flip side is that it feels good to have it in your back pocket. And then when you kind of goes out into the world, it's like, it has to grow up and, and it has to sort of fend for itself. And, um, you know, you never know what's going to happen to your kid in the schoolyard. So um, there's always a little bit of sort of like over protectionist, um, you know, feeling that, that it's no longer yours and it's no longer in your control. What, what happens? I mean, not specifically referencing the pandemic, but it's what four years since the last record. Yeah, it feels, it feels like a completely different world that this record is entering. Uh, did, did that shape the writing of it or the recording of it? Well, I, I mean, I definitely did. You know, the the thing that's kind of strange is that when we started this, um, we'd ha- we had no idea that the world was going to feel this different two years later. You know, um, yeah. We started this in June 2020, and um, at that point, it felt like maybe there was like a pause that happened. Um, we now know that it's the furthest thing from a pause, and it's been nothing short of just a complete transformation. But um, I think the making of the record was uh, sort of informed all the way along the line of of how far we felt like we were getting from the world that we just departed from, you know? Yeah. And, and it sort of, it ended up in a sense, the narrative arc of the album um, in a sense is what we intended to write the narrative of this pandemic as, you know, that something that starts in like utter confusion and um, uh, uh, turmoil and stress and anxiety um, and ends with like a huge party. <laughs> I mean, I, I've got to ask about. Um, I've got to ask about the opening track. There's, uh, it's, and that's a journey, right? Um, tell me, tell me about that because I, I, you know, it's been a long time since I, you know, I make music. It's been a long time since I've made a record. But you know, when people used to say to me, uh, people used to sort of give me bits of advice and stuff. And definitely opening your album with a, a ten minute song was not that was not part of that advice. Tell, tell, <laughs> tell me, tell me about the the thinking of that tune. Um, well, you know, for, for us, there, there. First of all, we, we never really set out to make this song like that. Um, it was just the song just kind of unfolded, and and we were when we were working on it. We, you know, we wrote the first part of the song. Um, by the end of you know the first half or the first sort of movement, if you will, it's like ending with that didn't feel correct. It felt almost almost unfair to the listener. You know, it felt like it needed to be. Um, it needed to be that there was like uh, some redemption, you know, it was just, it was almost like kind of too dark, you know? And so it just, then the next piece, Emily kind of came with a few weeks later and she was like, I think I know what we should put there. And she had this next piece and then it was just the piano part. And then we kind of sat with that for a little bit. And then we still felt like it kind of needed more sort of redemption. And, um, and then we wrote the last part, which is similar sort of when the band kind of like comes roaring in. And really that's the moment where like, you feel like you got the sort of 
lyrical and like sonic hug at the end of a true, her- truly harrowing experience, you know? Um, it wasn't until the, that that we felt like we'd completed the actual idea. And at that point, you know, we looked down and the song's 10 and a half minutes long. It was definitely not intended, but at the same time, it felt like it was the only option in order to convey the the the, the, the scope of the, the feeling, you know, and the, the emotion behind it. And later on, we started realizing that it was like, you know, a lot of the journey that we went through as people during the pandemic and, and as artists was finding our own sort of version of like freedom and, and letting go of anxiety and letting go of, um, you know, a lot of cares and the things about life that we all felt like were in our control. And then we quickly realized we're not in our control. Um, and and in a sense, the loss of control can be like an incredibly freeing feeling if you're not riddled with anxiety about it. And so we kind of were having these revelations as people while this was happening. And I think that's what allowed us to just be like, there's actually no other artistic place for this song other than to open the record. Um, you know, that's, that, that's really interesting. I, I uh, so I have uh, I have OCD and I have treatment for OCD and. Uh, and OCD is all about um, control. It's all about right, which, which sounds kind of scary to be honest, but and, and it is. It's a terrible illness, but it's it's about kind of you know the the refusal to accept doubt. And right. it's really interesting saying that about the pandemic because when everything happened, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of people who know me very well who were a little bit like, oh god, here we here we go, you know, like the the right. OCD is going to kick into overdrive. But for me, there was a big part of it that was like, oh right, well I've spent my entire life. Uh, refusing to accept that anything could happen and I can control everything and I have no control over this. And it was actually quite a, uh, was actually, there was a learning in in that for me. So it's interesting to hear you say that. Right. Like, did you feel almost, almost like a sense of, of, of freedom? Because it's like the thing that the anxiety comes from was then actually just happening. It's like, I, I kind of likened it a little bit to like a bee sting, you know, like, um, when you, it's like when it, the number of people that are sitting at a cafe or whatever, and a bee comes and it's like circling your meal and, and, you know, people get very um, tense around, around bees and around wasps, you know? And um, it's like, you, you probably get stung like once every 10 years or something. And when you finally get stung, you're like, Oh, look, it hurts. Oh, well, it just, it hurts. That's yeah. all it is. Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's totally. kind of like, Oh, well, why was I like, I spent more energy worrying for 10 years about being stunned by wasp than, than anywhere near the amount of like, the pain is nothing compared to that. You know, I, I tell you when I, when I speak to my therapist next week, I'm going to say, oh, I was speaking to this guy in a band. Um, he had this amazing uh, metaphor for uh, anxiety and OCD. So yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for that. If this, if this music lot doesn't work out, then maybe there is a backup, <laughs> maybe there's a backup career there. I'm, yeah, no, I, I, there's a there's a small community in Toronto that calls me the rabbi, so I, I'll I'll take it. Oh, nice! No, that's that's amazing. Um, yeah. I, the other thing I was interested, though, I guess, and it sort of ties in loosely, is the title of the song. Um, I guess as well as kind of everything that happened, as well as the as well as the general like terror of the uh, of, of the pandemic, like I really feel like there has been. Um, I don't want to sound trite by saying this, but there is a bit of a vibe shift, right? Like there is, yeah. I, I, I thought that, you know, entitling a song Doom Scrolling 
was quite uh was a bit of a nod to that like was that how much did that um it, it, does that come from a place of saying something about just what a state the world appears to be oh for sure i mean you know we i think we're all so acutely aware that it's not even like a it's it's not even it's barely even a statement um because everyone is just like you'd have to get it into someone's unbelievably horrific news feed for them to even think about it you know it's like they're doom scrolling so much that they're not even going to think about the term doom scrolling you know it's yeah. it's literally everywhere i mean you get on the you get on the tube and it's like everyone's doom scrolling you walk down the street everyone's face is in their phones and for the most part they're not looking at like beautiful pictures of like wonderful beach settings with smiling people you know um, yeah. Yeah. they're not reading like incredible news about like scientific advances that are going to help medicine i mean you know there are there, these stories are out there but they're not the thing that's that's floating to the top you know i and and it's part of human nature i mean um i read this amazing thing one time that said that um the the reason that that, that civilization and society um always reads bad news is it's it's it's, it's a survivalist method i mean when we were living in tribes um, when someone ran from one tribe, you know, across a desert or across a forest to the other tribe, it wasn't to bring good news because it was to bring bad news. So you could, you could prepare and you could survive. Um, so we're only sort of, we're programmed to, to put bad news above good news, um, because it's a, it's a survivalist method. And we're, and there's, there's just so much bad news now that bad news has become a big business, you know, and there's a lot of people making a lot of money off of bad news. And uh, I mean, it, I mean, it's wild. I, I woke up in the, I woke up briefly in the night and, you know, did, did my usual thing of what's going on in the world. And, uh, which is crazy. And that's not, that's not any way to live. But, you know, the first thing I see is that, you know, the, the former prime minister of Japan has been assassinated. Which is like I've been to Japan a lot of times. I love the country. That's like crazy, you know. Like there yeah. isn't there isn't gun violence in Japan, and it was just sort of it blew my mind really that I felt very upset about it and a bit freaked out. And I actually messaged a friend of mine in Japan, but then I went back to sleep because it's sort of just another day. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're we're so accustomed to it at this point, um, and Since I think really, I think really the thing for Emily in in writing that song was that. Um, you know, I think there's kind of like a dual function that, that, that happens when, when Emily Haynes writes a song in the world. And the first thing that happens is she feels, um, she feels confusion by what she's seeing around her. And it's through the process of writing the song that helps her interpret the information that she's receiving into something that she can process. And um, and then the second thing that happens is the people that listen to her music um, and know what she provides for them um, come to her to help to help them interpret the world around them. You know, um, there's something about when you see something that's not black and white and it, and, and it has, you know, emotional complexity or socio complexity or political complexity. Um, when someone speaks about it poetically, for some reason, we tend to understand it more. Um, we tend to be able to have that help us interpret what's going on. And uh, that's kind of what she does for people. But in a sense, she does it for herself first. And 
that is entirely what's going on in the song Doom Scroller. Um, I mean, I know you uh, eulogizing Emily there, and I, I agree with it hundred percent. And you know, really, that's kind of why we all we all were drawn to art in the first place, really. But I, I definitely, I definitely see why some people might call you the rabbi. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, do you still feel? I mean, it's a bit. I, I've lived with the record for you know a few hours, so. Um, so take this with a little bit of a pinch of salt, but I, I think it might be my favourite Metric album so far. Oh, like that's I, amazing! Thank you. I, I think it's ridiculous that you can be a band that are so far in, and the songs are just that. Uh, I don't want to say strong because you would expect that, but they're still trying to do. They're still exploring. They're still like adventuring. You know, that's that's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. Um, do you do you feel like that? I do. I I I, I really do. I genuinely feel like that, and. The thing that's that's strange is like, in a lot of ways, it feels quite natural. You know, it's like if this was sport and someone was like, how are you like a better tennis player in your 40s than you were in your 20s? Uh, then it would it would truly defy science. That that doesn't make a lot of sense. But but with with art and with music, it, it it's it somewhat makes sense to me that I would just keep getting better at my craft. I mean, if I wasn't, um, I I would probably stop and try and do something else, but it feels like we have so much left to explore. Um, I think there's a few little sort of like silver linings and saving graces in there. And, and one of them is that I, one of the things that we tried to do really from the very beginning was ride a whole bunch of lines between things. You know, we tried to be the, the commercial band in a non-commercial way. We tried to write hits for the underground. We tried to, merge electronic and rock music um you know if we tried to do something that was deeply established um you once you achieve it once you perfect it it's it's incredibly hard to go on you know i mean i think the strokes first record is one of the best records i've ever heard in my life the fact that they did it twice is almost mind-blowing but it the, but the rest of their career you know no offense intended to the strokes makes a lot of sense it's like you can't keep doing that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's such it's such a, a a pinpointed idea what they were doing, you know. It's a it's so of a time of a moment. It's such a simple, um, beautiful concept, you know. Um, it, but what we're trying to do is really complex, and it's incredibly hard to to achieve. So in a sense, that. Uh, opens up the future that you can just kind of keep trying. Um, we're trying to meld a whole bunch of different things at the same time. And uh, it does feel like every time we do it, we get a little bit closer. I think the other thing as well is that, you know, I was at, I was on staff at the NME uh, in the noughties and it felt, it felt like I saw metrics sort of every other week for, for a time. You were so sort of omnipresent at that, you know, in that scene. And I, I think that's the other thing is that, you know, we're, we're some we're some distance away from that, and there is, like I say, it still sounds like you're a, a band adventuring. But it's interesting that you say that about the Strokes because I guess it's that thing of, um, you know, it's almost like a bit of a played out trope at this point. But it's almost kind of that Bowie thing where it's almost like there's some there's some you know, there's many many hits, but you know, I don't mean kind of commercially, but there's many many kind of like peaks. But in order to do that, like you've kind of got to take risks. Is there yeah. any, you know, and for, for everything that Bowie was sort of in sync with the zeitgeist, there's a, there's a tin machine as well, right? So 
is there do you feel like you've kind of hit the hit the bullseye every time or is there any points of your career where you thought oh that that wasn't kind of quite what we were going for with hindsight um no that's really interesting and i feel like this is the thing that um really plays into like the lifelong narrative that i'm trying to sort of achieve you know is that when we did our first four records um each one sort of was was incrementally more successful than the last um our fifth record pagans in vegas was um was i mean commercially was like a little bit of a bomb for us it just did it just didn't hit and uh though there's a lot of hardcore fans that love that record um we were in a very very strange place as a group at the time um and there was just there was just a lot of stuff that that just sort of missed the mark um on on that album and in a sense very not dissimilar to just being stung by a bee it was like oh look cool now we have a record that didn't do as well as the last one now i can just move on with my life instead of fear that you know um, i mean i mean that's interesting though because i have spoken to i've spoken to acts before i mean i suppose it's sort of why are you doing this really but i've spoken to bands before who've had that experience who've made records they're really proud of and it hasn't it hasn't you know like you say for whatever reason the, the myriad of reasons why a record hits or doesn't like it hasn't connected and hasn't done very very well and it's almost kind of it's almost kind of infused them with a kind of creative paralysis really that they're almost like oh god well what did we do wrong this time maybe we need to go back to basics has that never happened with you well, no, in a, in a sense, it, it it did the opposite for me. You know, I, I, there was a there was a moment in time where uh, I think it was like around two thousand five or six or something, and uh, Neil Young played a show in Toronto at Massey Hall, where where he did live at Massey Hall in seventy four, and then this was his first time playing back at Massey Hall, which is probably the most legendary venue in Canada, and. Uh, he did the whole things like he did a, an hour and a half set solo where he basically played harvest from beginning to end. And I was there with my, I took my father to the show and I got us these crazy tickets. I think they were like five or 600 bucks a piece. And um, I felt like when I was watching Neil Young play, you know, everyone in those in the room wanted to hear those songs. Like that was very special to be able to hear him play, you know, old man, a song he'd written when he was 24, you know, and here he is as an old man. But but more than anything else, they wanted to be in the room with a legend. That's that's where the extra four hundred dollars came in. The first hundred bucks is for the song. The extra four hundred dollars is to be in the room with a true legend, and the, that legend only becomes one because he lived fearlessly. He, Neil Young had some of the biggest flops in musical history. I mean, you want to talk about terrible records? That guy has a handful of like unlistenable records and <laughs> and he wouldn't be the legend without those records you know yeah. a, a legend is someone who lives fearlessly and what i took from that was like so the minute you have a failure it means that you tried something and you failed and that makes you a, a better artist not a worse one they're the greatest artists didn't just only win you know they won and lost and and the most important part of it is they won after they lost. You know, you get back up and you try again. And if you fail again, you try again. And it doesn't mean that you make it any less adventurous. It, it that means you double down. You make it more adventurous. And in a sense, that was the most inspiring thing. And it kind of drove me to be like, great. So the more we fail, the bigger legends will be. 
I, I mean, obviously, this is well, this is a, an audio podcast, but if this was a video podcast, I think that during that uh, soliloquy, I think that I would put in some kind of training montage, but, but <laughs> beneath it, that was that was uh, that was stirring stuff. Listen, if the record had been out a little bit longer and I'd spent more time with that, I think I would get deeper into the the, the psychology of the songs, really. But um, I, I really love this conversation. It's really great when you love a band and you speak to a member of that band and it just makes you like the band even more. So thank you for that. Oh, man, um, I think we should end with something really important, uh, which is that it is now traditional that whenever I speak to someone from Canada on this podcast, I will ask them if they've ever seen a moose. <laughs> um, I think the only time I've ever seen a moose was we were um, we were driving on a bus across the Rockies, and I was sitting up with the driver. It was the middle of the night, um, you know, probably somewhere between Vancouver and Calgary or something. Um, and you know, you're like 7,000 feet up in the mountains and it's windy roads. And, um, it just feels like at any moment, like I can't sleep on that drive. And it feels like at any moment, the bus could just go over the edge. Uh, and I was sitting up with the driver and we were smoking and, um, and a, and a moose just like flew across the road and like clipped the edge of the bus. And the, uh, the, uh, the, I think the, the, the mirror came off. Um, but wow. It, it it got across the road. We got through the road. Um, I don't think either of us was too badly damaged. Um, but that was the, and it, and it probably lasted a quarter of a second. So yes, I've seen a moose for a quarter of a second. That um, that is a that is a good moose story. I mean, there are some other Canadians who've been on this podcast who sort of said, "Oh, you know, I've seen a moose at the side of the road." But that was that was an action-packed moose story. So <laughs> uh, I really loved that. Thank you so much for your time and. Um, I'm, I'm sure I'll pass across sometime in the future. Oh, yeah, my totally my pleasure, man. Uh, get well soon, Emily. Well, that was episode 56. Thanks to James for the chat. Thanks to Ashley Matthews for hooking us up. The theme tune is better band, Jobbers. And I'll see you soon. Okay, you got a rain advisory today, and as you all know, bees cannot fly in rain. So be careful. As always, watch your brooms, hockey sticks, dogs, birds, bears, and bats. Also, I got a couple of reports of root beer being poured on us. Murphy's in a home because of it, just babbling like a cicada. That off.